Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So when I say the word cattywampus, what do you think of? It sounds like something out of Lewis Carroll. I, I, honestly, I honestly think of, a, of like someone beating up a cat. It's very dark. I think of like <laughs> oh a cat. No, it's, it's bad. I don't like it. So it's like an event for you or like a tradition, like a cat, a cat wampus. No, no. I mean, I know that it's not someone beating up a cat. But like if you're asking me, like, what is the first image that comes into my mind of a catty wampus? It's like it's a, it's a cat being very unhappy. Yeah, I don't know what it means, but it's very much in my vocabulary. And I say it all the time. Without knowing what it means. Without knowing what it means, which is which is a perilous move these days, admittedly, because wow. some things you inherit are really have horrible, horrible origins. That is that is strong, confident white guy energy right there, Scott. Yeah, it's risky. It's a little risky. I'm not going to lie. And only now am I realizing how risky it is. But I guess if you're hearing this in the B-roll on National Security, you'll know it's not something horrible, too horrible, because I wouldn't have put it in here. <laughs> if it was, I would have just edited it out of existence. No cats were harmed in the saying of cattywampus? No, or or, 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 or wampusing, for that matter. It does sound a little bit like a Dr. Seuss holiday, a little bit. That's Actually, where so I here's, I'm of. looking at a, a website that's called Useless Etymology. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, it's that hardly says, useless. Uh, it first appeared as a noun in Charles Dickens in Martin Chuzzlewit, although it was probably first recorded as a noun in American works shortly before that. Oh, well, there you go. Suggested some sort of hobgoblin or frightening fantastical creature. Well, oh. I feel well read now. Yeah, there you <laughs> That's go. That's great. By 1873, it commonly meant in a diagonal position on a bias or crooked. <laughs> Through the 1840s, it was often used in other British works to tease at American slang, particularly colloquialisms from North Carolina. Oh, there we go. Well, you there know, my, you go. my family is like from Southern Virginia. So well, maybe there, that's, there that's we it. go. It's the border territory. Well, good. Well, I've, I, I feel a little less cattywampus now having gone through this with you guys. So thank you for letting me work through it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back with my two other regular co-hosts, Quinta Dresick here in the IRL studio. Hello. And Alan, of course, in the virtual studio. Hello, hello. And we are, as always, thrilled to be back with you this week to talk over some of the big stories in national security news after taking a little break Last week, from some of the bigger stories to talk about some smaller stories that have been hovering around the background, we are back to the big headlines this week with former President Trump, Gaza, and other issues on our plate. But before we get started, we do have a little bit of administrative work to take care of because this is in honor of that administrative work, which doesn't get enough honor these days, what we are calling the Alan Revoir edition because we are sadly going to have Alan stepping away from us for a few weeks and months. Alan this is your last gasp here on Rational Security for at least a little while. What do you have to say for yourself? It's been amazing, and I'm going to miss you all. But I will be back at some point. Uh, but I'm going to, I am going to indeed, as Scott mentioned, going to take the next few months off. Um, I've, I, what I really feel bad about is Quinta. I mean, what is Quinta going to do without having her weekly outrage session? I'm, just, I'm going to talk about the left 
I'm going to oh, talk about the left man. so much, I'm and you're write not going to be here. So many angry. I'm going to talk about Gramsci. Oh, I lie. love Gramsci. I we haven't, haven't talked about Gramsci. Gramsci. Oh, wonderful. Your Slack messages are going to prison blow notebooks. Up. Classic. Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. That may be right. right. I always think of material substructure, and there's a triangle dialogue I, about I, how God, the actual. Anyway, See, we're, we're already. This will be a socialism podcast by the time you get back. This Ellen. is why I'm get leaving ready. for a few months. There we go. Well, we will miss you, of course. But before you go, we will spend a little time talking about some big stories, so you can get a few last thoughts off your chest before you ride off into that Minnesota wilderness. Uh, one, not last time, but one time for a little while before we hear from you again. First topic for this week, ceasefire or misfire. We are now one month into Israel's military campaign in the Gaza Strip. As civilian casualties continue to mount and Israel's ground operations get underway, there are growing calls for a ceasefire, calls that the Biden administration may now be taking up in more limited and temporary fashion. Where are we in the conflict? Is there any end in sight? Topic two, freedom of screech. Former President Trump's speech and the right to it is increasingly becoming an issue in his various criminal and civil trials, both legal and otherwise, as evidenced by a recent bout of angry shouting he engaged in on the stand in his New York civil case. How have courts been balancing these equities? Is there something they can do better? And topic three, no, no, no. That's what the Insurrection Act is for. I pledge to you, listener, right now that I will not talk about Jeffrey Clark without referencing his most horrible quote ever <laughs> regarding what the Insurrection Act is for. Our future attorney general. Our future attorney general, Jeffrey Clark. In an effort spearheaded by co-conspirator number four himself, Jeffrey Clark, President Trump and his allies are reportedly planning for a revenge campaign if and when he returns to the White House, beginning with a complete takeover of the Justice Department. How realistic are these plans and what might be done to stop them? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So we are now one full month out from the horrific Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. And since then, I think a surprising amount obviously has changed. We're very much in a new world. But in some ways, we feel, at least to me, to be in a kind of state of suspension um, Israel has not taken as immediate and aggressive action as I think many people um, anticipated. At the same time, uh, the Israeli military is clearly moving forward in a pretty aggressive bombing operation in Gaza and I believe has started sending in troops as well into the enclave. There have been increasing, uh, I think it's fair to say, Expressions of discontent in the international stage, including from the United States um, and other allies of Israel about the mounting civilian death toll in Gaza. I don't have the numbers on hand as reported by the Gaza Health Ministry, but it is quite high. And there have been mounting calls as well for a ceasefire or for some kind of humanitarian pause to allow civilians in Gaza to get to safety. All of this, of course, is is happening in a political environment in Israel that is extremely combustible thanks to a far-right government um, and a prime minister who desperately wants to hold on to office in order to not be sent to prison. And in the United States, I think there are mounting questions about how the Biden administration's handling of this is playing on the domestic political stage. Um, so that's a lot. But to start with, Scott, can you talk a little bit about 
where we are on these conversations around a ceasefire or a humanitarian pause? I guess, first off, what what is the distinction between those two things? Sure. So it's a subtle distinction, and I think it's one that actually weighs a lot more heavily in the context of this conflict than outside people might fully be sensitive to because of the two terms often do have fairly interchangeable meanings. A ceasefire and a humanitarian pause often kind of mean the same things. Uh, It's just a question of duration and sometimes scope. A humanitarian pause can be any sort of kind of pause in the tempo of operation, some sort of temporary secession or limitation that specifically is allow some sort of humanitarian purpose, whether delivering assistance, evacuating the injured or civilians, things along those lines. And a ceasefire tends to be a little bit more of a comprehensive pause um, that may or may not be motivated by that specific humanitarian purpose. Sometimes it's simply because the two sides are wary of conflict. Sometimes it's because they have other concerns. Um, It could be for a variety of reasons, sometimes because they're undergoing peace negotiations, right? This is in other contexts, not necessarily in this context. Both generally mean something temporary. You know, a ceasefire doesn't mean peace is negotiated. It isn't something you usually pursue when you have resolved the underlying dispute of a conflict. Instead, it is kind of an initial step to say, okay, we both agree this conflict needs to come to an end. Let's declare a ceasefire for a variety of motivations, often substantially humanitarian, and try and work towards some sort of solution. But in the Middle East and the Gaza context specifically, that has often not been the case. We have to remember actually the uh, you know end of the 1956 conflict that established the Green Line that has become kind of at least the international community's views, the defining line about where the state of Israel prior to 1967 and prior to 1933 ended and begun actually was a ceasefire line. Um, The whole idea was that that was never going to be the actual final determination, but because negotiations never really went anywhere, um, that became the de facto line of control and that became uh, kind of established legal line. In the Gaza context, every other prior exchange of hostilities, um, which has often entailed rocket campaigns against Gaza, has ended in a ceasefire that doesn't resolve anything. It's essentially Israel just saying, OK, we're going to stop this, but we reserve the right to continue this again in the future, this sort of military operation. Uh, and sometimes Hamas has uh, agreed to uh, conditions on its own and about stopping some sort of operation or other activity or making other concessions as part of a- accomplishing a ceasefire. That difference makes a big difference here because it's the reason why I think the Israelis are so adamantly opposed to what they think of as a ceasefire because they are interpreting the calls for a ceasefire as a call saying end military operations. Let's bring this back to the status quo ante. And they are saying, no, we can't do that. Um, And I think that's also the reason why the Biden administration and many other national leaders in Europe and elsewhere really have not come out and said we should do a ceasefire. They don't like that language because they understand – the Israelis understand that that is a suggestion that this is a more permanent resolution. But we have seen them in the last few hours, including statements by the G7 just in the last few hours, come out in support of humanitarian pauses. This is the idea that we do need to limit and cabin sometimes quite openly our ongoing military operations, specifically ongoing Israeli military operations, although hopefully there would be some cooperation with Hamas as well in ceasing certain military operations of its own, potentially rockets, et cetera, to achieve these humanitarian purposes. And it does seem like that is where the weight is going. And I've read at least a few people who have interpreted some of Netanyahu's recent comments as suggesting they might well be open to that uh, begrudgingly. I don't know if I understand the subtleties of what his remarks quite the same way, um, but I can't rule it out. A, a lot of it comes down to how you translate it and 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 kind of a, a interpret the broader context in which he's framing Israeli actions. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction between ceasefire and humanitarian pause. But I, I do think ultimately 
you know, the devil is in the details of specifically what the Israelis are willing to do, you know, in terms of, let's say, humanitarian pause, because, you know, already they're taking some steps, you know, probably insufficient to allow at least some individuals who are, you know, wounded and injured in Gaza to leave. Um, And so the question is, how much more will they allow both in terms of, you know, egress and, and entrance of supplies and other provisions? And, you know, the problem from the Israeli perspective, at least one, is that, you know, Hamas is not a reliable partner in any of these negotiations. So, you know, there there was a lot of condemnation of Israel uh, for striking an ambulance in Gaza, or I think leaving Gaza or something like that. Um, and on the one hand, you're not supposed to strike ambulances. On the other hand, uh, fighting forces are not supposed to put their own soldiers in ambulances, because the whole point is that ambulances are supposed to be uh, off limits from, from, from everyone's perspective. And so you know, when you have Hamas, who has said quite explicitly that, you know, it's not their responsibility to protect Gazan civilians, and that they're perfectly fine turning Gazan civilians into martyrs, that creates a challenge for Israel, because even to the extent that it wants to do any sort of humanitarian work, and to what extent Israel wants to do that, obviously, is itself a question, it runs into problems of, you know, not honestly being able to negotiate with Hamas in any uh, reliable way as to that fact. I actually want to ask you, Scott, about the this incident with a ambulance being targeted. So I'm looking now at a, a tweet from the IDF that explicitly says that uh, the IDF did target, um, and this is a quote from the tweet, um, Hamas terrorists who were operating within the ambulance. I've seen some discussion about the legality of this under the laws of war on the grounds that ambulances as providing medical services, you're usually not supposed to to target those and some suggestion that that prohibition is pretty absolute and therefore that Israel may have breached its international legal obligations here. Is that the case? Like, how, how do you read this decision? And I do want to use this to move on to a bigger discussion about the level of civilian casualties here in Israel's legal thinking. But just to start off, I was curious about that. Sure. There is generally a – I'm oversimplifying things here kind of consciously. But there is generally a pretty strong bar against striking ambulances and medical facilities that are operating as ambulances and medical facilities. This is famously why, you know, a century ago when modern warfare began to develop, they painted big red crosses on the top of ambulances and medical facilities to identify them as – medical facilities and things that shouldn't be targeted um, by military forces, right? I think they actually started at the end of the last century, if I recall correctly. That practice, though, uh, there's there's a not an exception to it, but there's a contrary rule associated with the idea of perfidy that says essentially that, yes, you have these protected statuses, but other armed forces aren't supposed to be guising themselves and hiding their operations as, as this sort of operation. They can commit their own violations of international law by doing that. And then the question becomes, well, at what extent does the, a, a commission of perfidy strip away the protection of a actual medical facility, right? Uh, that's a hard question. Um, I think most people would – most international lawyers would say that it really doesn't unless they're the actual medical purpose is not being served. Um, there may be an extent where military necessity, you know, warrants that you have to go in and separate the medical facility or interrupt its operations to, um, you know, remove uh, the hostile elements, things like that. But the idea of, you know, just being able to openly target those medical facilities, if they are actual medical facilities, simply because they may also be playing a role in hostile elements, military operations, there is certainly some trade-off. I think a lot of militaries will recognize there. 
But I think there's a pretty usually by by most standards, and particularly from like an advocacy or uh, international law uh, academic perspective, like a pretty really strong presumption in favor of the idea that you're not really supposed to be doing that. The bar of evidence has to be really high to take that sort of action in violation of what is a pretty foundational um, assumption and protection of international law. So. Like so many cases here, the difficulty is in the facts, right? Like if this ambulance was actually just being used by Hamas for military operations or even mostly by for military operations, then hitting it could be a justifiable uh, target, right? Um, at least by a lot of measures. And again, I think most states have a friendlier view of that. I think a lot of outside viewers of these sorts of issues have a more uh, higher bar threshold of when that line would be crossed. But if it was actually an ambulance doing Ambulance Works and happened to pick up some Hamas fighters, there's an argument about whether or not it should be doing that and how it should be allow itself to be used in certain ways. But that's not usually the thing that a lot of people would say this crosses the line into saying it makes you a valid target, I don't think. So I do think that's a good lead-in to the bigger picture question about the level of civilian casualties here. There's been reporting in a number of outlets, I've read it, um, just focusing on U.S. outlets in both the New York Times and the Washington Post about increasing discomfort uh, within the U.S. government at the level of civilian casualties in Gaza that Israel has clearly decided are on the table here as part of its calculations, um, both under the rules of engagement and under international law. In particular, I will point to a what I found a quite jarring article in the New York Times uh, the other day that said that unnamed Israeli officials, so not necessarily military officials to be clear, have pointed to uh, past American engagements to justify these actions, including uh, Fallujah, Mosul, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, which is a strange example to use because, A, the laws of war didn't exist yet, and B, uh, General Curtis LeMay somewhat famously said that if the U.S. had lost, uh, that they would have been tried as war criminals for the firebombing and the nuclear bombing of Japan. So that strikes me as a bit of an odd example to point to if you're Israel and a pretty disturbing one, honestly. Um, So I'm curious what you both make of this. Um, how should we understand the the calculation that Israel is making? And is it the case that, as I certainly thought reading this article, that something has gone terribly wrong here um, in terms of what level of civilian casualties are being considered acceptable? So th- this is the question, ultimately. And this is honestly the question that I have been asking you you both, right? As in, rational in the, security the, listeners will recall. Will recall um, since this war began. And my thinking about this has been shaped, I think, most by two really um, useful pieces. So the first is this one that Ben wrote um, after he came on rational security, I think in part is response to my question about, you know, how to even think about the question of whether a war against, uh, you know, existentially threatening death cult like Hamas even could be disproportionate. And his response was that, you know, the real question was whether the war prosecuted by Israel had some sort of strategy behind it. And that the real question was, look, if at the end of this, you don't actually have any sort of solution for what you're going to do afterwards, then putting aside the legal questions, the war in Gaza is immoral because you are killing a bunch of people for essentially no good reason, right, in the strategic sense. That's one way to think about the problem. The other way to think about the problem, it seems to me, is more as a specifically 
legal question under international law. Uh, and here, there's a really, really useful piece that was published um, earlier this week by um, Adil Haq, who's a professor at uh, Rutgers Law School and a leading uh, law of war uh, scholar. He posted this on Just Security, and we'll, we'll link to it. And the title is Enough, Self-Defense and Proportionality in the Israel-Hamas Conflict. And his argument is basically that at some point, even if your war aims are just, um, and even if your enemy really is acting terribly, if there is simply too many civilian casualties um, that you would have to incur in order to defeat that enemy, that is disproportionate and you just have to live with that enemy. And the reason I like this piece so much is not because I necessarily agree with it. I, I think I probably don't agree with it, but also I'm not a law of war specialist, so I, I kind of have to defer to um, Hawk a little bit on this point, though I suspect you know the law of war at this level is there's so much disagreement that there's probably no clear legal answer. But what I really appreciate about this piece is how clear it is. And this is the kind of clarity I've been wanting critics of Israel's war in Gaza to articulate. And he does so really well, right? The demand is that it just may be too costly from a civilian perspective for Israel to defeat Hamas. And so the argument is Israel just has to live with that. Now, we can argue whether that is right or wrong, but conceptually, that's a very honest answer. And I really do appreciate that. The question, though, of course, is, is that answer being applied even-handedly to Israel relative to you know, other countries that one could imagine in similar circumstances? This has always been, I think, the criticism from Israel and from defenders of Israel against how international law and the international law community has viewed it, right, as essentially making things always harder for Israel than it would for any other country. And that's where I think you get, Quinta, to your point, Israel's citing of examples like Fallujah and Mosul and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I want to put Hiroshima and Nagasaki just aside for a second, you know, and maybe we'll come back to it, right? But right now, there's no indication that what we are looking at, I think, is going to be a Hiroshima or Nagasaki-style engagement. If it is, we'll come back to that, right? But right now, it's looking much more like, let's say, the battle for Mosul. And the battle for Mosul was... Um, this six-month-long battle at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 against ISIS in the city of Mosul in Iraq. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page of it right now, and obviously it's very hard to know how many civilians actually died in that battle. Um, but it looks like we're looking at 10, 20, maybe 30,000 civilians when all is said and done. Obviously, accounts differ. So we're looking at something that one could say is at the level of the war in Gaza. Uh, and so the question is, was the Battle of Mosul a violation of international law? Now, I'm sure some people think so, right? But of course, that was not the predominant view, as far as I can tell, of the international community or of the, you know, Western nations, um, the US, Britain, France, etc., um, who fought in Mosul. And so I think from Israel's perspective, the question is, okay, what is the actual standard? Are you telling us we have to live with Hamas on our doorstep? And if so, are we the only ones that have to live with something like Hamas on our doorstep? Again, I don't have any answers there, but I, I think that this, this is just clarifying. Let's just be very clear as to what the different positions are. Though, again, I, I continue to be just very um, confused as to what I personally think should be the right answer. So for me, at least, I will say, I think the reason that I found the reference to the nuclear bombing of Japan so chilling was because I think it it gets to the kind of split screen that's happening right now between... The IDF, which is a highly professionalized military that takes international law very seriously, although it ta also takes extremely aggressive uh, interpretations of international law in many instances. And 
the Israeli government, which is currently made up of a very ragtag group of people that includes a lot of, frankly, crazy people. And there, in fact, there is a far right minister uh, who had made a comment about dropping a nuclear bomb on Gaza. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Um, But I do think it's telling that, A, that guy is in the government, um, and B, there's been some reporting that uh, Netanyahu wanted to kick him out and caved when Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's the extreme far-right minister of national defense, objected. Yeah, it, it, it cannot be emphasized enough just how much Netanyahu's cabinet sucks. Like, yeah, this really oh, is something 100. that is so important. I mean, these guys are awful. They are awful. And, and so, but this is the thing, right, is that Maybe a good comparison here is like when under the Trump administration, when there was reporting about the administration deciding to allow a greater amount of permissible civilian casualties in drone targeting on suspected terrorists in the Middle East. It was hard in those instances to gauge whether this was like a well-considered policy decision by DOD, which one could disagree with, but was, you know, the product of a lot of thought and care versus something that uh, on which the wheels were greased because it was under a president who had made a promise on the campaign trail to murder the families of ISIS soldiers. And so it's just, I think it's the fact that these people are in government, the fact that Netanyahu's cabinet is so awful that this rhetoric is on the table, I think, like adds an additional layer of difficulty, at least for me, in evaluating the permissiveness morally and legally of what the IDF is doing on top of the other sort of fog of war aspects that we've already touched on where like it's really hard to know was Hamas really using that ambulance as an ambulance or was it only for military purposes, et cetera, et cetera. It just makes the whole thing a lot more difficult to to pull apart. I think that's right. And I, it is a reason why this discussion between a ceasefire versus humanitarian pause is complicated. Um, because, you know, I don't know if we're quite at the point yet, as you've articulated, Alan, where we say you have to live with this Israel, right? Like, I think people would agree that certainly if you could do so without committing civilian casualties, Israel would have a clear right to respond militarily and disable Hamas from threatening its soldiers following the October 7th massacre. Um, I, I don't think many people would disagree with that. Uh, you know, there's there are broader questions about, you know, justice and issues regarding Israel and Palestine. But setting those aside, at least, I think a lot of people would say that, that there's a good case to be made there. Um, and then the question becomes, how far will the civilian casualties go? How much of these current civilian casualties are avoidable? But but that would, in a way, that would still allow you to pursue that military objective potentially. And the truth is, I don't think we really know that answer yet because it's not clear to me that uh, the Israelis have said that have made clear, have made the case they can't do what they want to do without this level of civilian casualties, and that actually complicates this analysis. The Mosul example, I think, is a really telling one, right? And, and we have to think about what it means to compare to Mosul. So many people have deployed this example without really understanding what the actual numbers and process were. And here's my recollection, which I'm pulling in part from memory, but I believe this is right. The I think most media and observer groups have said there, there were probably around 10,000 civilian casualties in Mosul, 8 to 10,000, of which about a third were attributable to U.S. and allied, meaning Iraqi, uh, and, and primarily Iraqi, but other forces as well, um, bombing campaigns in Mosul and other military operations. So uh, three to 4,000 civilians result of uh, military operations death there. Other ones were the result of responsive actions by 
the uh, by ISIS and the other people controlling uh, the city, right? And that doesn't include the number of ISIS soldiers who were killed, which were a lower number number than that, by a substantial number, a few thousand ISIS soldiers are eventually killed. And then, of course, the objective was to evict ISIS from the city, reestablish control of Mosul, and reclaim it as a you know, Iraqi habitation, not something controlled by the Islamic State. That occurred over about a nine to ten month period, right? I think October to July, basically. So you think about that pace of operations and what it means, right? Um, and I'm using time here as a substitute for like the tempo of operations, the scale of operations. Mosul is a city much larger than Gaza, much less densely populated. Wait, just to clarify, the larger than Gaza city? I think I believe it's larger than probably larger than the Gaza Strip. But no, probably not the Do whole. Do you mean Gaza by Strip. area or population? City. Mosul is like 1.2 million. Gaza is over two. Yeah, and I don't know what Mosul was before the you know the the yeah. impact of the Islamic State's takeover. I think yeah. uh, impacts population. I, I think the key point here is that Mosul is a less complicated target. Is what I'm getting at. I think Gaza is denser and uh, a little more complicated to pursue any sort of. Um, intensive bombing campaign, right? Like if you're trying to minimize civilians, it's a harder place to do that. And we've seen military operations that credibly have committed somewhere in the vicinity of 10,000 deaths in Gaza. It's a fair criticism to say these are coming from the Ministry of Health. There may be some variation. I kind of doubt that it's a order of magnitude to say it's not within, you know, a standard deviation of around the 10,000 to 11,000 number we're seeing. And it's a fair criticism to say like some of these people were Hamas fighters probably and aren't being, are being treated as civilians. Even with those two margins of error, you're seeing a level of operational tempo and with potential likely civilian casualties, even in numbers that are fairly uh, skeptical of the claims by the Ministry of Health in Gaza, that approaches what was done in Mosul over the course of several months, right? And it's not that far off, maybe at some of the larger numbers from actually like the overall results of Mosul over the course of nine months. The reason I flag that is that it really underscores like the aggressive tempo and scale of operations Israel has been pursuing. And the question is really, particularly because you cannot chase Hamas out of the Gaza Strip, is there actually a compelling strategic reason this has to be done with this pace? And I don't think there is. I don't think Hamas really has much of an operational capacity to threaten Israel again, certainly in the way that was done October 7th, or really in many other ways in the immediate future, so long as Israel exercised substantial vigilance. And that strikes me as saying that means that Israel has a long window of opportunity where it can systematically weaken Hamas, target Hamas in, in much more targeted ways that might not have these consequences. And according to reports, that is what the Biden administration has been arguing that it should do and pressuring it to do largely unsuccessfully, although maybe some of these more recent ground operations are moving in that direction. So that's a long way to saying, I think there's a lot of space to criticize what Israel is doing, even if you accept that it has a right to self-defense and you say, and that's a reason why we shouldn't just have a ceasefire in the more permanent context now. The numbers on this, the parallels are really problematic. They're not great for Israel by my counting. Um, they suggest Israel really is embracing a much more generous standard of proportionality that allows for a higher level of civilian death in most of these cases. And you can argue whether that's unlawful or not. And the truth is it's, it ends up all being in the eye of the beholder because there's probably no supranational legal authority that's ever really going to weigh on in this in a way that Israel is going to care about. But – if, in terms of U.S. policy, in terms of observers, how we make of it, I think it's hard to deny. And it raises real ethical and policy questions that, you know, I think the Biden administration and others in the international community are really wrestling with and that are going to turn against Israel if they're continuing on this tack. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So moving from a decidedly not funny, horrific international conflict to, I think, a pretty freaking funny domestic situation, let's talk about Trump and the endless attempts to get him to shut up. <laughs> so I, I do think in a way that you can boil down the civilized world's relationship to Donald Trump as just one long attempt to get him to stop talking. <laughs> uh, and we have not figured out a way to do that until I think quite recently, uh, when we have finally begun to use uh, certain parts of the legal process to get him to be quiet, with, you know, of course, varying degrees of uh, success. Um, as everyone knows, uh, Trump is being uh, sued in multiple fora. Uh, he's being sued, most importantly for our purposes, for uh, acts um, surrounding January 6th uh, in uh, both D.C. and Georgia, uh, and also in a civil suit in New York, um, alleging that uh, Trump has for many, many years been fraudulently inflating the value of his properties. In the New York case and in the uh, D.C. case, the judges there have both issued um, gag orders of one sort or another, and Trump has abided by them sometimes, kind of, not really, um, and the whole thing is very entertaining. Quinta, you have thought a lot about this, and you wrote a great piece uh, for Lawfare about what all these gag orders and Trump's seeming inability to follow them means. So, so explain it. And again, bonus points if you can get a two bodies, uh, the King's two bodies reference in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, as you say, the the man truly cannot stop talking, and I think the the charm, at least for me, of the gag order in the New York civil case is that we can see exactly how much Trump values in like dollar terms his ability to not shut up. Uh, so far, it has been worth $15,000, which is uh, that those are some pretty expensive truth social posts and remarks to the press. Well, uh, well, at this rate, it's going to cost him a quarter of a billion dollars, which is the uh, penalty that uh, New York AG Tish James is uh, is going for in that case. I did at this rate. Which makes a lot of sense, honestly. Like when you're dealing with really rich people, right. you should be slapping proportional penalties that they care about. Like you yeah, slap a $15,000 yeah. penalty on me. I'm probably well, going to shut that's, up. That's my question, right? Is whether how the the uh, Justice Arthur Angoron in New York is scaling up the fines. If we're going up by 5000 every time or 10000 every time, I don't care very much. But maybe, you know, if we're doubling each time, like then then we're we're really onto something. Exponential growth. Hell yes, curves, let's baby. go. Um look, I mean courts have really broad authority to maintain discipline within the courtroom as Trump is now discovering. So the the New York gag order is still in place. The D.C. gag order is once again administratively stayed after Judge Chutkin administratively stayed and then unstayed it once Trump appealed. Then the D.C. Circuit also slapped administrative stay on it while they're considering Trump's motion to get rid of the gag order altogether. Um, so there's been a real back and forth there. But the long and the short of it is that Trump is not currently bound by the gag order. I will say that 
the last time uh, Chutkin put a stay on the gag order, Trump posted something that I think pretty obviously would have violated the order within like 48 hours. Uh, this time, I believe so far he has been quiet. I'm someone after we put this episode out, someone's going to send me a post that shows that he hasn't been. But he's been like remarkably self-controlled. And I think what this shows, setting aside my jokes about how much he values his ability to mouth off, is that he is definitely impulsive, but he's actually quite canny when it comes to using the sort of institutional pushback against him as a way to position himself as a victim and calculating how to do that to maximize the benefit to himself and minimize the cost. Um, and maybe he's realized that Chutkin really isn't messing around and that he needs to cool it if he's going to get the D.C. Circuit to get rid of the gag order altogether. Or not, I don't know. Um, but I do think that the aspect of this sort of confrontation with the court system where Trump is able to position himself as a victim because institutions respond reasonably to his absurd provocations is a potentially really dangerous one. And I do worry where that is headed in terms of violence against the courts. Um, it's notable that both Engoran and Judge Chutkin have exempted themselves from the gag orders, which is very noble. And I understand why they want to do that from a sort of optics point of view, but I do worry. And I think there's also a question about, you know, to what extent are the courts just equipped resource wise to handle this kind of thing? Judges have U.S. marshals. Um, I, I will say I, I was not able to run down what kind of security New York Supreme Court uh, justices have on hand. Um, but presumably there's, you know, there's some level of court security. But what about, you know, witnesses? What about jurors? Right. We've had a bunch of instances in which jurors have been allowed to remain anonymous, uh, where jurors have voiced concern about being doxxed by, uh, in, in one instance, a January 6th defendant who was re representing himself pro se. Like all of these are really serious considerations. And I think that the gag order kerfuffle is funny, as you say, but it also points to some really serious issues that are only going to come up more and more as these trials move forward. I think that's absolutely right. And it, it is just like an underscoring of the toolkit that judges have and their discomfort at using tools that may be available to them, but that are beyond the norm, right? And you have two convailing interests here. On the one hand, Donald Trump is a defendant like no other. Uh, you you would think you would have to go to exceptional tools there. Or he's a defendant like few other. Like he's not the first billionaire or millionaire. I don't even know if he's a billionaire being put on the stand, right? Um, the first very wealthy person. Um, yeah, he's the first former presidential candidate in this way. Certainly the first current presidential candidate that's being seriously a front runner nonetheless for the Republican nomination. Um, those all factor in. But he's a unique candidate. On the other hand, you've got a strong incentive because of his unique political role to do everything you can to treat him as close to and as demonstrably and verifiably like a normal defendant as you can. So when you start reaching for these more extraordinary remedies, it puts you in a little bit of a difficult you know, political slash, you know, pseudo political situation where you're a judge and you're worried about your public legitimacy and how people perceive what you're doing. And you're throwing more fuel towards the people that are saying, uh, you know, you're treating our, you know, potential future president unfairly because you're doing something out of the norm. On the other hand, you may have to do something out of the norm to get the results that you need. And that are the normal results you are pursuing with most other defendants. 
That's why I think you are likely we are I think we are going to see more and more financial penalties get really ratcheted up into serious domain. And it will be really interesting to see where former President Trump really hits back on that. Because I would be very surprised if higher courts don't uphold substantially these orders. I kind of suspect they're going to trim them, prune them, and caveat them in ways to like really try and tailor them around problematic speech. But that is fundamentally the speech that Trump is pursuing a lot of these cases, you know, insulting court members, you know, denigrating uh, the law clerk for uh, the judge in New York or uh, bringing attention to them in a way that could threaten their safety and well-being. Like that is just black letter, straightforward, everyday sort of stuff that courts are supposed to be preventing. And they're not going to second guess these courts ability to do that. And financial penalties, I think, are the sort of comfortable area where they're going to be OK imposing those. If they were to try and, you know, hold former President Trump in contempt, put him in jail, anything like that, that really hits that First Amendment barrier because he's a presidential candidate. The monetary end, like it's actually a place where him being a millionaire kind of maybe insulates you a little bit because you can start slapping pretty extraordinary financial remedies and still plausibly be able to say like, well, this doesn't actually stop his ability to engage in speech. At a certain point, it's going to be really hurt painful for him and then he'll have to reconsider his behavior. And so I, I just think that's where we're headed. And it's I think it's a good thing that we're beginning to see some prosecutors, and other, some other people push the envelope and start pushing for these higher penalties. That just seems like inevitably the direction where this has to go if these courts are actually going to want to get him to comply with some of these demands. No, I think that's. I think all of that is right. I think what makes it even more complicated is that Trump is just not playing the same game that everyone else is playing. I mean, this is something that I've just found to be so interesting throughout all of these trials. Maybe this is a little bit less the case in the New York trial, where like you know he can't just make it go away by becoming president, and he really probably does care about being able to still be a businessman in New York. Um, but I think it's certainly true for the Mar-a-Lago case, and it's certainly true for the two January 6th cases, which is that a normal defendant is trying to be acquitted, which seems like a stupid thing to have to say. Um, but it's important to notice that because Trump is not trying to get acquitted. Now, I'm sure Trump would love to get acquitted, but that's actually not his primary strategy, as far as I can tell. His primary strategy is to become president and then make all those things go away, right? You know, make DOJ, make these cases go away, you know, whatever the, whatever, whatever weird article two theory he's going to, he's going to put forward. And so because of that, um, he's not responsive in the same way as your standard defendant is, you know, whether it's to gag orders or whether it is to out of court statements or whatnot, because the more the, 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 the criminal justice system tries to punish him in these politically charged cases, the more he can use that to fundraise, the more he can use that to defend his status as the avatar of the MAGA people, whatever. And so this is what I think puts the judges in the biggest bind, right? Uh, maybe not so much the New York judge, but like, let's say Judge Chutkin, right? Who's the judge overseeing the federal January 6th case, right? Like, you know, if, if Trump won't shut up, like she could put him in jail. And like, at some point that would be the right call. But like, that's not actually going to necessarily advance the interest of justice. Not because it would be unjust to put him in jail, but because that might make him a martyr. And, and so like, I, I don't know... I mean, th there really is some three-dimensional chess going on here, and it, it is a, a unique challenge to our criminal justice system because there really is only one individual who can play this game, which is someone who might become the president of the United States, uh, and our system is just not set up for that for kind of obvious reasons. Well, speaking of legal troubles, let's go from legal troubles facing former President Trump to some legal troubles he is hoping to impose on others. This past week, we got another slew of reports out 
about a project that's gotten a bit of coverage before. So this is entirely new, but we got a few more details about what is known as Project 2025, an effort being spearheaded by a number of what are described as right-wing Washington, D.C. DC think tanks, although that's a little unfair to right-wing Washington, D.C. think tanks <laughs> because there are those. And then this is They're generally this. Yeah, something quite different, but that's okay. Um, Too crazy for heritage. It, it is a, a separate effort uh, being spearheaded, uh, among others, by Jeffrey Clark, co-conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator number four himself from the special counsel's D.C. prosecution of former President Trump, um, who, of course, played a starring role in the events surrounding 2020 election results detailed in the complaint or the indictment, excuse me, in that uh, matter. He is essentially developing a plan to assert the takeover of the Justice Department to bring in loyalists there and in other parts of the federal government, particularly the Justice Department being a focus of these efforts. Um, he of Jeffrey Clark, of course, being the person who um, tried to assert uh, briefly may have been the as- acting assistant attorney general uh, or acting attorney general, excuse me, before um, uh, that status was uh, more or less revoked or, or deemed improper um, and persuaded. People per- talked down former President Trump from trying to put him in that role in the lead up to January 6th. The key point being this is an effort to put loyalists into the Justice Department and then use that as a tool to investigate, harass, and bring prosecutions against various people who have wronged former President Trump um, and generally to insulate former President Trump from a lot of the mediating and moderating efforts that other people pursued on his behalf while in his administration during his first term. In particular, we have seen reports from John Kelly's first chief of staff noting that former President Trump repeatedly said, why don't we investigate or look into enemies of mine or rivals of mine or people saying things I don't like, and that he, by his own account, would then refuse to hand these over to the Justice Department or direct his staff not to talk to the Justice Department about them and instead just inform the White House counsel, who does not appear have to have generally acted on them either. Without somebody like Mr. Kelly in that role, presumably those efforts might have had a little bit more sway. And the question then is, to what extent in a future term, a future Trump administration, will those efforts meet with resistance by the Justice Department or will he be able to staff the Justice Department with sycophants and lackeys and people like Jeffrey Clark who are not just willing but perhaps eager to help implement this tool of revenge uh, and make the Justice Department much more an extension of President Trump's own preferences and priorities. Alan, you are, of course, the Justice Department alumni among us. What is your sense of these plans? How realistic is this? How much of a pipe dream is it for people in this particular position? What should we be making of these stories? What should we be doing about it? Well, what we should do, what we should be doing in response to them is pretty simple. Uh, We should not vote for Trump for president in 2024, which is a bit of a flip answer, I'll admit. But it also is, I think, true because DOJ is the soft underbelly of an authoritarian takeover of the United States government. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. And that is for fundamental constitutional reasons. The Department of Justice is, as much as any other executive department, an extension of the president. The president is not just the commander-in-chief, not just the diplomat-in-chief, but he is the law enforcement officer-in-chief. He is the legal interpreter-in-chief. That just is how the constitutional system works. And I just don't think there's a ton of debate about that, or even among people who generally push back against the unitary presidency theory. So what that means is that the relationship between the president and DOJ uh, and DOJ subcomponents like the FBI is entirely one of presidential norms. And if we've learned anything is that Trump doesn't care about norms and that whoever 
could have, and to some extent did restrain him for at least some of his presidency, will not go back into a second Trump administration, in part because they know who they're dealing with, right? An insurrectionist wannabe autocrat. And also because Trump knows who he's dealing with, right? You know, I think one thing that's sort of almost refreshing about these these really sort of horrifying pieces is that the veneer that, you know, Trump will just staff his administration with like respectable Fed sock type people, it's just gone, right? No one thinks that's going to happen. You know, Stephen Miller is going to be like the, the and Jeffrey Clark and going to be running around, uh, running the show. And there's nothing anyone can do about this. Like, this is the problem. And so this makes me extremely, extremely worried. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this, this will destroy DOJ like, without question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting article in Slate by Rick Hassan that's called Terrifying Reports About Trump's Plans for a Second Term Have One Bright Spot. So that tells you it's going to be controversial. Um, that, that makes kind of an interesting point about the same thing that you're saying, Alan, where uh, what he's pointing out is that when you have that respectable veneer gone, you're also losing a lot of talent and it also means that that talent is now potentially on the other side. And this is not just a pipe dream. Like what what this article points out is that we saw what this looked like in 2020 and 2021 when you had all of these FedSoc judges who ruled against the Trump campaign and its efforts to overturn the election. And you also saw, and this is something that I'm become obsessed with a lot of you know highfalutin law firms like jones day pull out of representing the trump campaign when it became clear that they were going to have to make arguments that would get them sanctioned um which indeed is exactly what happened to the lawyers like rudy who went ahead and made those arguments anyway and i think that that actually mattered a lot in terms of kind of social signaling about what was and wasn't acceptable and in terms of just like the Trump campaign did not have the high caliber legal firepower on their side. And that actually means that you get sloppy, you make mistakes, you're not well positioned to do the things you want to do. Now, I don't want to be overly sanguine about the what's going to happen here. The, the Washington Post story is really scary. But I do wonder how that dynamic is going to play out. I don't I mean, it's definitely true that there's a certain extent to which you know, look, if you're in power and you don't care, there's a lot of stuff that you can just bulldoze through. And we saw that in the first term. But I also wonder whether the sort of civil war within FedSoc, for lack of a better way to put it, is going to make that dynamic a little more complicated. Um, I would also like to apologize for impugning the Heritage uh, Foundation earlier. It turns out that they actually are involved in this. So thanks, Heritage. I was going to say, not, I just, I just say not They're all. They're not too crazy for heritage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, think tanks in DC. Uh, I agree with that. But I also think it's important we put in this in context to understand why those prior efforts didn't work and why it's significant to have this, you know, misallocation of talent. And that's because Justice Department operates in the space of law. And then specifically, at some of its most influential actions are subject to review by courts. That's actually a big constraint and a problem for this whole fundamental plan. And it's worth noting, not just reviewed by courts, but in terms of personnel opinions, subject to the advice and consent of the Senate, which also matters substantially, right? 
we saw the Trump administration play with acting officials. There's demonstrate and push the limits of what they can do with acting officials. And there is a lot they can do with acting officials, right? That that don't have to do Senate advice and consent. But they also ran into real barriers there as well. There are statutory barriers. There are legal barriers to what acting officials can do. Uh, and in particular with the Justice Department, it really, particularly after a passive period of time, or if you're not careful about who you pick and where you put them, um, it can undermine the enforcement capacity of the Justice Department. We saw this with the Matthew Whitaker experiment, which led to a whole array of potential legal challenges to Justice Department actions, many of which the Trump administration very well may have wanted to pursue or that other government, other administration may have wanted to pursue, and it caused real problems there. At the same time, any sort of prosecution of people is going to be subject to judicial review. They're going to have to pass a, you know, a threshold where not only are they going to have to show a court that is not completely fabricated, there is a legal basis for it, a judge to, to get past a motion to dismiss, they're then going to have to persuade a jury about it. And frankly, for most federal employees, they're going to have to persuade a jury in Washington, D.C. So good luck. Um, so I don't think this ends up with a lot of people being sent to jail um, because I don't think many people who are, are enemies of former President Trump have violated the law in any colorable way that could possibly lead to a conviction by a court, um, particularly when you consider that most of the judiciary not appointed by former President Trump, even where you might get a, a lucky to get a trial judge who's willing to go along with something crazy, it's still going to be subject to appeal uh, by a lot of other judges. The place that you will be able to see stuff is abuse of investigatory powers and enforcement powers. And this isn't just the Justice Department. Of course, this came up in the context of the IRS during the Trump administration's uh, prior stint in office. Other agencies that can just make people's lives really difficult. Like it's really expensive to defend yourself from an IRS audit or an FBI investigation. It's really painful. It has reputational harm. And so those are very real costs people might suffer. There are ways to push back on them. You know, in particular, we've seen things like legal defense funds pop up that play a big role in alleviating some of these costs and, and pressures on people. But it is, you know, definitely a tool. So I don't think we need to be wary of the fact that there's a lot of harm that can be done in this space. But does it lead to the idea that former President Trump's going to suddenly be putting his enemies behind bars when they haven't violated the law? I, I don't think it gets that far. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out also that we already have almost certainly seen an example of the Trump administration attempting to prosecute a political opponent that uh, went nowhere because a grand jury refused to return a true bill of indictment. And that's Andrew McCabe, uh, the former deputy director of the FBI. We don't know that what happened was that the grand jury uh, refused because of grand jury secrecy laws. Um, but it seems pretty clear that uh, I'm, I'm comfortable speculating, let's say, that the government attempted to prosecute him, I believe, on uh, 1001 uh, false statements, charges, um, and a grand jury just didn't bite. And whether or not that is an example of the rule of law working or not working is, is up to you. But it is worth putting that on the table. Exactly. And you can look at the Durham investigation and a number of other instances where these efforts to really pursue lines of legal inquiry that the Trump administration or supporters of former President Trump might have liked, but that were greeted skeptically by most conventional lawyers really fell flat as conventional lawyers expected. And I think you will see more of the same in response to this effort. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time together for this week. But this would not be rational security of course, if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, you are giving us an object lesson to ponder over in the many weeks to come until we hear your voice again here back on Rational Security. Tell us, what object lesson do you have to share? So I have a new book that I have just started reading. Like literally, I'm four pages in. So hopefully it continues to be as good 
as it has been for the first four pages. But I do suspect this is the sort of thing that rational security listeners will enjoy. Uh, it's a book, uh, a new novel called Julia by Sandra Newman. Uh, it is essentially a retelling of George Orwell's 1984 from the perspective of Julia, who in the original book is Winston Smith's love interest. It's just really good. Like the character is really appealing. Um, I mean, the world building of 1984 is so fabulous. And so just from like a fan fiction perspective, I just love to know more about that world. Now, I want to be very clear. This is like real literature. This is not like just some crappy fan fiction. Um, uh, so I don't want to uh, uh, I, I don't want to sort of denigrate the book on, on that uh, basis. But you do want to stick one to crappy fan fiction. Screw Take you. Take that, Alan. the internet. <laughs> no, no, no. It is, it, is, it is not crappy fan fiction. Um, it is literature that also has the bad benefit <laughs> of fan fiction, which is it takes a, uh, a universe that is very interesting and very uh, uh, influential and expands on it. So um, again, I am, I am four pages in, but uh, I have high hopes for uh, for this book, Julia by Sandra Newman. All right. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would also like to recommend a novel, um, though in this case, one that I have finished. It is called The Late Americans by Brandon Taylor, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite writers working today. He's just a really sharp observer of the strangenesses and quirks of modern life. Um, it's definitely not cheerful, I would say. So maybe, you know, read it if you feel like wallowing or if you don't mind being in a bad mood. But it's just very crisp and sharply observed and always gives me a a lot to think about after I finished reading his writing. Wonderful. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am bringing you a history lesson because this past Tuesday, when you're listening to this, in the week it came out, November 7th, was the 50th anniversary of the enactment of the War Powers Resolution. Hooray! Once seen as a revolutionary and highly influential piece of legislation that would restore Congress to its constitutionally proper role, central role in matters of war and peace, it definitely hasn't done that. Uh, and in fact, is now a law that whose 50th anniversary was greeted with absolute crickets from all corners because it is despised by people who on who like broad visions of presidential authority in this area and think it's unconstitutional and despised by those who want to see the president restrained because it has been so ineffective and stretched so far by executive branch interpretations. I tend to take a view that nobody likes on this, which is that I think all both perspectives are kind of true, um, and that it has nonetheless, in spite of its many flaws and inefficiencies, proven to be a really, really revolutionary piece of legislation that has really recalibrated how we think about the two bra- political branches and their engagement around matters of war and peace over the last 50 years from the early Cold War era into today and has a bit more of an enduring legacy and influence than most people are willing to acknowledge. And I wrote a piece arguing as much for lawfare that will be up imminently. It should be up certainly by the time you're hearing this. So check that out uh, and check out some of the other uh, interesting historical pieces on this piece of legislation that continues to be with us today in a lot of ways that uh, I think people don't acknowledge or recognize uh, and that I think means it has a little bit more of a positive legacy that we should ponder over uh, as we continue to wrestle with the same set of issues Congress took on when they enacted it 50 years ago. And with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. Be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on X at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. Also, 
Sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and their music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patra Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.